So we're going to be looking at the second half of the passage we had read uh, before. So you find it helpful to have that open. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. All good children go to heaven. Seemingly, it's so simple, they put it in a nursery rhyme, didn't they? It's basically the default position of the world. The idea elsewhere in the Bible is is, uh, coined by a similar phrase, meaning the ABCs of the world. We get it with our mother's milk. But one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, all good children go to heaven, is not what the Bible teaches. This is one of the things that makes Christianity radical and unique in our world. The way to heaven is not through being good or trying to follow a set of rules. Actually, the answer is so radical that people shy away from classifying Christianity as a religion. It's not about rules, but a relationship. It's not about rules, but about faith. I did part one religious studies uh, at university, and I had to do a presentation at the end of the first year. And my point for the presentation was that Christianity shouldn't be taught in religious studies, because it's not religion. Now, that might sound a little bit weird to you if you're investigating Christianity this morning, I mean, in some ways, it certainly looks like a religion, and it feels like a religion. But whilst the externals might seem similar in some ways, the engine underneath it is an entirely different beast. Paul in Romans here is going to show us this morning just how different the gospel is to all other religions in the world, and all the things that we sort of naturally seem to think about how the world works. We saw last time that God is telling us through Paul that the way to get right with God is faith alone. Not religious ceremonies like circumcision or even baptism. Faith alone in Jesus Christ and his sacrifice is what saves us. And if you remember last time, there were hecklers that sort of heckled Paul as he was giving uh, this message, if you like, and he's sort of imagining them as he writes the letter. Well, imagine another heckler comes in now. Surely keeping the Ten Commandments, surely trying to play by the rules... That's what counts with God, right? God wants us to obey his law, so those who do are in the right, aren't they? But Paul says, no, completely and totally and utterly wrong. So our first point this morning, keeping rules does not get anyone right with God. Have a look at uh, 13 uh, to 17 again. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring. Not only to the adherent of the law, but to the one who shares the faith of Abraham. What it's saying is, how did Abraham get the promises? How did they come to him? Was it by the law? By Abraham keeping a set of rules? Is that why God made him promises? No. Actually, what God did was declare him righteous by faith. He did it by making a promise to him, not a set of rules. So you see, what he's saying here is that you can't make a gracious promise to someone and then later on add provisos. You know, like terms and conditions may apply. You should get that, don't you? 
Otherwise, it's not really a gracious promise anymore, is it? So if I said to one of my boys, you know, I promise I will buy you a car for your birthday, proper car. I can't later come back and say, well, I promise I'll buy you a car if you pay half. I've made my promise null and void, haven't I? Because if they can't provide the other half of the money, I've broken my promise to them. It's no longer a gracious promise if you're demanding things from the other side. It's no longer those who are recipients of the promise who receive, but the ones who meet your terms and conditions, the ones who do what you've said. The gift of righteousness, as it's been called, is no longer a gift. It becomes a wage, doesn't it? To those who do what you tell them. And what he says here is that law doesn't bring gracious gifts. That's not what law is for. Law brings wrath. So think about it. It's the business of the law courts, isn't it? To punish the guilty and free the innocent. But none of us are innocent, are we, in God's sight? So the business of the law is to punish the guilty. So law doesn't bring reward. It brings wrath. Law plus sinful man equals wrath. It never, ever equals righteousness. So, it must rest on faith, our standing before God, and not law. Keeping rules can never make us right before God, and it was never meant to be by rules. It was always supposed to be by faith. The promise came, you see, before the law was given to Moses. So, the way to get right with God can't be the law, because Abraham was already right with God without the law. So, last time we had a brief history of um, Abraham's life. Here's a brief history of history. Here you go. Abraham declared righteous, Genesis 15, law given, Exodus 20. What he's saying here is that if Abraham was declared righteous before the law was even there, it can't be the law that makes you righteous before God, declares you righteous before him. And it's the same with all rules that we make, any moral code. It does no good because ultimately all it can do is bring wrath on those who break it. Now, if there's no rules, there's no rule breaking. That's what he's talking about there and saying if there's no law, there's no transgression. If there's no law, then there's no law breaking. But there is a law. So far from making it better, actually it just makes things worse. It makes us not just guilty of sin, sort of general rebellion against God, but transgression, actually breaking the laws that God's given us. So law brings wrath, But faith brings righteousness. So what he's saying here is if you want to be right with God, it must rest on faith and not on the law. Keeping rules can never make us righteous before God. If it was, then that would nullify the promise, wouldn't it? It would be those terms and conditions. But Abraham wasn't declared righteous by the law. He was declared righteous by faith before the law was even given. So it can't be that way. And if it is by faith, then by definition it's by grace. That's what he says there, isn't it? About uh, It rests on grace uh, in verse 16. John Stott puts it like this. Grace gives, faith takes. Grace gives, faith takes. They're two sides of the wonderful coin, if you like. The only way that God can guarantee his promise to Abraham's offspring is to give his promise freely by grace as a gift. If his righteousness is a gift, 
If it's giving, then what we must do is receive it. Grace gives, faith takes. Faith and grace go together, that's what he's saying. If it's by faith, then it's by grace. But if it's by law, then it's wrath. Faith, uh, faith and grace go together, just like law and wrath go together. If it's by faith, you get grace. If it's by law, you get wrath. Which would you like? He's sort of presenting it to us. So that means that Abraham then is not the father just of those who have the law, but actually those who have faith. Those who trust in Christ and his sacrifice alone. And that makes Abraham the father of many nations. It really is, as it puts it there, he is really heir of the whole world. Because he's father of many nations. Not just the Israelites, not just Israel, all nations. Those who were given the law by Moses and those who weren't. Jew and Gentile. Abraham's physical descendants who have faith. And Abraham's spiritual descendants who have faith. So he's saying here, what what matters isn't about having Abraham's DNA, but Abraham's SGF, strong growing faith. I couldn't quite make it into a nice little thing like DNA, but (laughs) strong growing faith. And that's our next point. Strong growing faith gives glory to a strong, faithful God. In the passage that follows, Paul gives us an insight into the God in whom we have faith. And what that faith is to look like. He tells us two things about God. Have a look at verse 17. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of the God in whom he believed. Who gives life to the dead. And who calls into existence the things that do not exist. Do you notice there the two things he picks up about God? The God that Abraham believed in? He gives life to the dead. And he calls into existence the things that do not exist. Now this uh, applies in several different ways in the passage. To Abraham, it's in a sort of unexpected way. Not quite figuratively, but sort of heading that direction. Abraham believed in a God who gives life to the dead. And we read in verse 19 that his body was as good as dead. You see that? He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead. We're also told that Sarah's womb was dead. So second part of that. Or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. The word there, barrenness, literally is deadness of Sarah's womb. What it's saying there is Abraham was as good as dead. Sarah's womb was dead. And yet, Abraham believed in a God who gives life to the dead. He believed that God could even do it, even though, humanly speaking, it was impossible. He believed in a God that could raise the dead, raise his own body, if you like, and give him offspring. Abraham believed in a God who calls into existence things that do not exist. Now, some see that as a reference to creation. That's possible, because God did bring all things into existence from nothing. But in context, it's more likely to be the righteousness that God gives him, that did not exist. He was not righteous by himself, but God calls that righteous standing into existence. But we can take this quite generally, can't we, as as Abraham does himself in this, uh, or Paul does with Abraham. Think about ourselves. We believe in a God who gives life to the dead. 
We believe in a God who speaks and something, sorry, nothing becomes something. And that means actually in our day-to-day circumstances, just like Abraham's circumstances, God is not phased by the circumstances that we're in. Even if it, things get to the point of death, he can bring them back to life. Even if things get to the point of non-existence, he can call them back into existence. And that's when things are dead. Think about things that are still alive. Things that are still going. And the God of Abraham is our God. I found this encouragement to me last week. Uh, I wondered at points uh, when I didn't know whether I'd had a heart attack or not, whether I was going to die quite soon. But then I remembered this passage because I've been preparing it. It should have been last week, this one, but it's actually this week. I remembered, I believe in a God who gives life to the dead. This is not tricky for him. This is not beyond his capabilities. This is not something God doesn't do. God gives life to the dead. And the same is true in a million circumstances in our lives. Is this too hard for the Lord? Never. He's in the business of raising the dead. And if you think I'm overreaching here in applying this, remember that Paul applies this to Abraham and Sarah's fertility problems. What he's saying is even non-existence is not a challenge to God. This is the God that Abraham believed in. This is the God that we believe in. How do you honour such a God? Look at verse 18. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about a 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he was promised, what he had promised. Bible commentator Matthew Henry writes, He that trusts another gives him credit and honours him by taking him at his word. Thus Abraham gave glory to God by trusting him. When you have a God who can do anything and is in control of everything, the most honouring thing you can do is trust him. Or in Abraham's language, to have faith in him. When God is in the equation, a body as good as dead is no obstacle. When God is in the equation, a menopausal pensioner is no obstacle. Sometimes you hear, don't you, that faith is ignoring the evidence. Nonsense. Abraham knew his own body was as good as dead. But Abraham had other evidence. The promises of God. He knew that, humanly speaking, it was nigh on impossible. He was under no false impressions. But this wasn't close your eyes and wish on a star. This wasn't the power of positive thinking in Abraham's life. This was Abraham considering his body, but then considering the God who gives life to the dead. So faith is not trust minus the evidence. Faith is the impossible plus the promises of God. And when God comes into the equation, nothing is impossible. So when faith with, faith with a God who can do the impossible, trust is the only logical option. 
So in that sense, faith and logic are not enemies. They're friends when God comes into the equation. Because actually it's completely logical to believe in a God when he's made promises, to believe those promises from God. And as Abraham exercised his faith in God and those promises, it grew stronger. If I had a pound for every time someone told me they wanted stronger faith, well, I'd probably be at least competing with my boy's piggy bank. I don't want to sort of exaggerate too much, but I'd probably be competing. But do you see here that faith is like a muscle? It goes strong through exercise. If we want to grow in our faith, then we've got to exercise our faith. We need to use what we've got. Only then will it grow stronger. And it's worth stopping to think for a second, just the whole thing, that the idea that Abraham's faith grew. Think about it. It wasn't always as big as it was. But it grew. And that's what gave glory to God. Do you see that there in verse 20? But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. The two things are happening at the same time. It's not saying that his faith was impeccably perfect. Only Jesus had perfect faith. But it was growing faith. So think about it. Abraham's faith was weaker at the beginning when God made the promises than it was at the end. Abraham's faith grew. But even Abraham's weaker faith at the beginning was glorifying to God as it was growing. How strong your faith is in one sense is not something you can choose. But you can choose to exercise the faith that you have. You can help it grow. But in all this, we must remember that the value of faith is not how great and strong it is, but how great and strong the one you have faith in is. See that there in verse 20 and 21? No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Now you could translate that, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was strong to do what he promised. They're the same sort of related words, the two of them. His faith grew strong because God was strong to do what he had promised. And we can have strong faith, not because we are strong, but because God is strong to do what he's promised. And that should help us when our faith feels weak. It may be weak faith, but it's in a strong God. Some worry about that phrase, fully convinced. You know, this idea that, oh, you know, is it that it's, it was, it's fully convinced, that means that that's what that meant that he uh, was right with God. The word convinced isn't actually there in the Greek. It's not a bad translation, but it is really hard to translate. The word is literally filled up, uh, fulfilled. So it's it sort of, he was full up with that God was able to do what he had promised. What it's saying here is not that Abraham had perfect faith, but he was full up with the idea that God could do what he promised. That's what was filling him. That was what he believed in. So Abraham did not have perfect faith, but he did have saving faith. And those two are not the same. What matters is there in verse 22. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. Our faith, however strong, however weak, 
As long as it is in Jesus and his sacrifice, his saving faith, if it's in him alone, then it can save us. And our faith is counted as righteousness before God. And that means, lastly, we too can be counted righteous. Have a look at 23 to 25. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised the dead, Jesus our Lord, who is delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Now it's worth remembering here that the Bible is not written to us, it is written for us. These words were spoken to Abraham, but they were for us too. That doesn't mean the Abraham, uh, story of Abraham is irrelevant to us. In fact, that's what makes it relevant to us. I mean, imagine if Abraham's story was written to us. Well, we'd all have to move to Israel. We'd all have to grab a child and take him up the mountain to sacrifice. These are not things I would recommend to you. No, Abraham's story is written for us. We're supposed to learn what it means to be a believer in Christ from what happened to Abraham. So God tells us here that the words of, uh, to Abraham here were not an isolated case. In fact, what was true for Abraham can be true for us too. Abraham was counted righteous by faith alone, so we too can be counted righteous by faith alone. Abraham's faith was in a God who raises the dead, and our faith too is in a God who raises the dead. In fact, our faith is centred on a God who raises the dead, because we believe that God raised Jesus back to life. The resurrection really is the central tenet of our faith. We believe in a God who raises the dead. What we're told here and reminded of is that Jesus died for our sins and was raised again, that we might be justified. Remember that phrase means that we might be right with God, declared righteous in his sight. And this is the heart of the gospel. Jesus died so that we could be right with God. Not through being good, not by keeping rules, but by faith alone. Now, some people treat this doctrine as though it's some sort of peripheral thing, but it's no such thing. Martin Luther, the great reformer, called it the article upon which the church stands or falls. John Calvin, another reformer, called it the hinge on which the whole of Christianity turns. C.H. Spurgeon said that justification by religious performance and meritorious deeds is nothing better than old Phariseeism with a Christian name stuck on it. That doctrine makes the Lord Jesus Christ to be practically a nobody. What he's saying there is, why would Jesus come and die if we could be saved through good works? What does Jesus have to do with our salvation if it's just about being nice to people? That's not to say that good works are irrelevant, although it doesn't matter how you live, but with regard to your standing before God, they stand for diddly swat. Nada, nothing. What counts is faith in Jesus Christ, who is delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. So it's not faith plus works. It's not faith plus the Ten Commandments. When we say that, if you think about it, it's as though we're saying Jesus' death wasn't enough to save us. You know, Jesus' death got us a bit of the way, but we have to do more. But the Bible is clear. Jesus' death is enough. We don't need anything else. 
And this is of crucial importance, isn't it, if you think about it? The vast majority of people out there think that this error is exactly what we believe. They think that's what Christians think, don't they? I mean, when I did my religious studies uh, at, at university, I sat in a class where we were told by the seminar tutor that Christians believe you get to heaven by keeping the Ten Commandments. That was someone who was supposed to be an expert in religion. That's partly why I did that presentation at the end of the year, to set him straight. Yeah. <laughs> he took it okay. But it's far worse than that, isn't it? There are actually many churches that you could go to where that is what's taught. Faith in Jesus' death is not enough. You have to top it up with good works. Now, I don't often talk about other churches. I've been sat in churches where that happens and felt a bit uncomfortable. But listen to this, though. This is the Roman Catholic Catechism, uh, number 2068, if you want to look it up. The bishops, successors of the apostles, receive from the Lord the mission of teaching all peoples and of preaching the gospel to every creature so that all men may attain salvation through faith, baptism and observance of the Ten Commandments. So how are you saved from that? Faith, but not faith alone. Faith, baptism and observance of the commandments. And that's not going back to the stuff that was said during the Reformation in the 1600s. That catechism was written in 1992, which I still think of as just being a couple of years ago. But it's not that long ago, is it? Now, not all Catholics believe that, but that is what the church teaches. And the same is true of churches of a liberal tradition. Salvation is a, a works or a mixture of faith and works. So then Jesus becomes not our saviour, but our example or our coach, teaching us how to save ourselves. And this is not a secondary matter. This is not just something we can sweep under the carpet. I get asked a lot about why we don't join ecumenical organisations in the area like Churches Together. Well, I want to say, well, how can we stand shoulder to shoulder with churches that teach something so different on such a crucial matter? People's eternal destinies hang on the answer of this question. How can we say it doesn't matter? How can we say we could just agree to disagree? So we're not being awkward and nitpicky. We're actually trying to be faithful to the truth. We're actually trying to show people how Jesus can rescue them. And we're happy to cooperate with any church of any denomination, tradition, system that holds to those basic truths of the gospel. And we do. We're part of the Yorkshire Gospel Partnership along with Anglicans, Methodists, Congregationalists, Presbyterians and Independents. And I'm on the steering group. The problem is that many churches in the UK don't even hold to the basic truths anymore. That's the problem. They've reverted back to that default position, the ABCs of the world that were saved by works. But before we go overboard in criticism of others, what about ourselves? Do we believe this? Martin Luther, uh, quoted before, also said this. Every week I preach justification by faith to my people because every week they forget it. Okay. Every week I preach justification by faith to my people because every week they forget it. And isn't that so true for us? We may recite this with our lips, but do we believe it in our hearts? In our hearts, do we believe that our standing with God is secure and settled because of Jesus? Or do we believe it varies as to how we're doing? 
Do we make our assurance about Christ and his finished work on the cross or about our ongoing works day to day? You see, religion says do. The gospel says done. Christ has done all that we need to be rescued. He has saved us to the utmost. He has saved us completely. Again, I'm not saying sin is inconsequential. It can have massive consequences. It can destroy relationships. It can ruin lives. It can decimate assurance. But it cannot separate you from the love of Christ. It cannot undo your justification. Because our salvation is not based on works, good or bad, but on faith alone. And that means on our worst day, we're saved by faith alone. On our best day, we're still saved by faith alone. And I know I said that last time, but as Martin Luther says, we forget, don't we? Our heads are so imbued with sin that our default position is to make it all about ourselves rather than about Christ. Our sin has so skewed our nature that we're like a boomerang that keeps coming back to the same point. We keep going back to that default position, even as Christians. We adapt a little bit of one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. I must be good to go to heaven. But the incredible truth that we've seen in this passage is that we're not saved by works. Even as Christians, we're not saved by works. We're saved by faith alone. We're still saved by faith alone. Actually, it's more like this, really. Think about it. It's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. All who trust will go to heaven. That trust is not a work we produce. It's a gift from God. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. All who trust will go to heaven. Eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. Because we cannot save ourselves. Thirteen, fourteen, fifteen on. It's all of grace. The work is done. We need to remember that. We need to preach that to ourselves. Day by day, week by week. So that we won't fall into the world's trap of going back to thinking, it's about me. When actually it's about Christ. So let's pray that we put all our trust in him, not in ourselves. But in his work, not our works. Let's pray. Father God, so often we confess, uh, Father, that we, we don't think of things this way. Father, so often we're tempted to think that it's our good works, even after we become Christians, that put us in the right with you. Help us to remember that Christ's work is enough for every single day of our lives, that Christ's work is enough to cover every sin. So, Father, help us to put all our trust in Jesus and his sacrifice, not in ourselves, that all the glory and all the praise might go to you. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.